Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to church this morning. Uh, before we begin going over this text, I uh, want to do some quick housekeeping. Uh, so we are beginning a new time for L2 youth. So if you are an L2 youth, you can now head downstairs to the foyer and meet up with Austin, and you guys are going to have a party. Um, I, so that's thing one. Thing two is we annually, around this time of year, we do a long underwear drive, uh, which basically looks like we all uh, contribute money to a fund that we have set up on our website, and then we make a bulk purchase of uh, long underwear from the Army-Navy surplus store that we donate to the Denver Rescue Mission. So uh, we, uh, a couple uh, that's attended our church for a long time uh, spotted this need that the homeless especially have around this time of year. Of just It's difficult to keep warm without good layers, and they, t- they rarely receive uh, good brand new base layers. So this is a way that we can uh, help keep our homeless friends in the city warm uh, uh, with just a small contribution. So if you go to our website, l2church.com, click on Give, uh, you'll be able to select the fund to give to you, which just says Long Underwear Drive. Um, if you have a better name for it, <laughs> could you maybe send, it, send out our way, our branding, we're working on it. But for now, it's Long Underwear Drive. Um, okay, so... Welcome to church. Let's get into our text this morning. We are in the midst of our series called Anatomy of the Soul, and it is a look through the Psalms. What we're looking to uncover is uh, this dichotomy that we have in our culture for the ways that we approach our emotions. On the one hand, we're told that our emotions are the true core of who we are. That if you get in touch with your emotions, then you know your true self. And then, on the other hand, we're told uh, that your emotions are actually to be neglected. And you need to just focus on your reason. And the problem with you is you're misordered. You're following your emotions too much. And in both cases, what we see is one aspect of our humanity idolized and the other aspect of our humanity demonized. But the Psalms take a very different approach than our culture does. We aren't pitted against ourselves in that way. The Psalms describe this wholehearted way of living, where our thoughts inform our emotions, and our emotions diagnose our thoughts, and we're able to live in a wholehearted way, not neglecting one aspect of ourselves to idolize another aspect, but truly living as God created us to be as whole people in the world. So that's what we're exploring throughout this series. This Sunday, 
we're looking at a topic that I think will be pretty close to home for many of you, maybe all. It's pretty close to home for me. Uh, the title of the sermon is uh, Anxious Labor. And that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at anxiety as it relates to our work. What, uh, and it could be anxiety as it relates to any number of things as well. But generally, we're looking at anxiety, this sort of emotion that seems to have such a grip on so many of us, that lives with such a power over our lives. I know in uh, many conversations <laughs> with uh, friends here, there's a, uh, you probably have a plan for tonight because it's Sunday night, so you know that the Sunday scaries are coming. And the Sunday night scaries are that horrifying feeling of it's Monday, the work week is mounting, and so we got to have a plan. How am I going to address tonight? Like, my Netflix, my Netflix queue has to be loaded. Um, and we've all finished Stranger Things, so I don't know what we're going to do. Um, so we're, this psalm, in a sense, addresses that, that tendency in ourselves towards the, this fear that we, we sort of just, many of us just live with. It's a constant in our lives, this, this anxiety that plagues us, especially, I think, in the productive parts of our lives, the parts of our lives where we're actually producing. It, some of the parts of our lives that should be the most joyful and invigorating are our, our work, our parenting, are also plagued by this anxiety. So that's what we're looking at this morning. And more precisely, we're looking at a psalm written by Solomon in which he describes how to carry literally an entire kingdom of responsibility without anxiety. We're going to look at how Solomon is able to do that. My favorite uh, picture of anxiety and what it does to us and how it plagues us is in a book that you might have been forced to read in school. Uh, it's called Metamorphosis by Kafka. Any head nods of I was forced to read that, but I didn't? Yeah. My sister teaches high school, uh, so I know that they're still forcing students to read this book in high school. Uh, it has probably the best opening line ever. Uh, the opening line is, One morning, as Gregor Samza was waking up from anxious dreams, he discovered that in bed he had been changed into a monstrous, verminous bug. That's a good opening line. If you write that, you're, you should be a writer. Um, Kafka thought to himself as he penned the opening line. Um, so, the, it's not a metaphor in the book. It's a, the... the category, or like the genre of this writing is absurdist. So if it sounds absurd that this guy, Gregor Samza, which is a great name, wakes up to discover himself having turned into a bug, if that seems absurd, then you're tracking with the story correctly. It is absurd. It's absurdist. Uh, but what many of us may have forgotten or don't remember about the story is where Gregor's thoughts immediately go after having realized that he's woken up and he's turned into a giant monstrous bug. Um, like a bug. That's <laughs> sign language for those of you that... Um, so his thoughts, this is his first thought, immediately after having discovered that he's turned into a bug. He says, Oh God, he thought, what a demanding job I've chosen. 
day in, day out on the road, the stresses of trade are much greater than the work going on at head office. And in addition to that, I have to deal with the problems of traveling, the worries about train connections, irregular bad food, temporary and constantly changing human relationships which never come from the heart. To hell with it all. He wakes up. He discovers that he turned into a bug, so he's having trouble getting out of bed. And his first thoughts are, oh my gosh, I'm going to be late to work, and I've got all these challenges to deal with at my job, and it's going to go terrible. And as the scene continues, he starts worrying about how late he's going to be, and his boss literally comes to his door and is knocking on the door. And he's like, come on, Gregor, you're late for work. It's time to get to work. And he's a bug, so he can't use doorknobs, um, which is true of dogs and bugs, and if you just use moisturizer. Um, and he can't get out of the... Uh, uh, it, anyway, what we see is he's turned into a bug, and yet he's just plagued by these typical anxieties about his work. And as a reader, it's so frustrating because you just want to shout at him like, Gregor, forget about the train connection that you're going to miss. You've turned into a bug, and for some reason no one's explaining why <laughs> or like what any of this means. And it, it, what you start to realize is Kafka's doing something really amazing. He's He's saying what's absurd in this story isn't that this man transformed into a bug. It's that even after he's transformed into a bug, he's still just driven completely by his anxieties. His anxieties have become who he really is. So what we're able to do in seeing a story like this is zoom out and see our own thoughts, how when we're driven by our anxiety, we're, we're totally, we're walking around in this cloud of worries and thoughts and our own ideas <clears throat> that we're, are just swirling around in us, and, and we're totally neglecting what it is we've become. Kafka pushes this to the, to the extreme, and he, it's like he, he, Kafka looks at all of us and he says, Look at the way you're living. Look at how you're just plagued by this anxiety. And look who you've become. And he says, I bet you care so little about what it is you're becoming that if you were to wake up and discover that you were a bug, it wouldn't even make a difference. This psalm, we're given an opportunity to sort of zoom out with Kafka in that way and see what is happening in our anxiety. What is when we go about day after day, driven almost exclusively by fear, who are we becoming? What is that saying about how we relate to God and how our work relates to God? That's what this psalm is about, and so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to see, first of all, in this psalm, the relationship of our work to God's work. So how does our work and God's work, how do they relate? What is the connection there? And then next, we're going to see how we can have peace in our work. And then finally, we're going to see the glory of our work. So the relationship of our work to God's work, peace in our work, and then the glory of our work. So Psalm 127, verse 1 
says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So this is a psalm written by Solomon, and and it's a wisdom psalm, which means it it has these echoes of, of almost like Proverbs. In that first line, it's these two parallel premises that sound like a proverb to us. And, sorry, I I just lost my spot. Here we go. So it pushes us into this question of who is it that is ultimately responsible for the building? Who's ultimately responsible for the protection of the city? And it pushes us into this sort of paradox of, okay, so unless God builds then the builders, who it seems like they're the ones that are actually doing the building, their, their work will be useless. It'll be meaningless. It won't even come to fruition. If that feels paradoxical, it's because we have this idea that, well, it's either God working or it's me working. And those are our options. It's God working or I'm working. But the Bible doesn't allow for that sort of division of labor in what we're uh, in this text. And the reason that we expect that sort of division of labor to be possible, what's actually happening is what's being exposed is our own very secular presuppositions. Now, secular doesn't mean atheist. You can believe in God and still be a very secular thinker. Because you can see that, well, there's God's work, there's God's doing, and then there's my doing. And what that describes is a view of God that is ultimately detached from his creation. He set the world in motion, and then he stepped back for us to, on our own, autonomously, uh, develop the produce that the world can out of it. And so we can go about our work absent from God and needing God's grace, in not needing God's grace in any sort of way. That sort of thought gets exposed by this verse. So, instead, instead of either God does it or we do it, this verse puts them totally together, which is, God is building and we are building and those are inseparable. These are totally inseparable things. Now, what is also easy for us to do is approach this verse and start to hear it, uh, like especially Christians. You may start to hear this verse, and, and you'll flip it in your head, and you'll turn it into, unless you build for the Lord, you labor in vain. Unless I'm doing this for the Lord, then it's in vain. Now, I think that there's a lot in that principle that's true, but that's not what this verse is saying. This verse has nothing to do so far with our demeanor towards our work. This verse is describing God's demeanor towards our work. Unless the Lord is involved of his own accord with the building, then our labor is in vain. See, that's actually a much more frightening prospect. Because that means we don't get to be in control 
of God being involved with the building that we want to be building. This means that it is by his grace alone that he would be involved in the building. Unless the Lord builds the house, then we can spin our wheels as much as we want, and our labor will just be in vain. It will amount to nothing. What this is describing is a radical dependence that we have. For any of our work to be successful, for any of it to be meaningful in any sort of ultimate way, we are totally dependent upon God accommodating our work. It would be nice if it said, unless you build for the Lord, then you labor in vain. Because then we could just be like, okay, well, I'll build for the Lord. You better show up now because you owe me now. But that's not the story. It's not what the verse says. What we see in this, if we look at it then, again, from a, a bit more positive of an angle, is if it's unless the Lord builds the house and those who build it labor in vain, there's a lot of houses. If you walk around, you see a lot of, there's a lot of houses. This is a general, that's, I read a statistician, and he said there's a lot of houses right now. <laughs> uh, which means that God is accommodating a lot of human effort. God is joining a lot of building that's happening in the world by both Christians and non-Christians, by people that are in good moods looking to glorify God and by people that are in bad moods looking to rip someone off. And God is accommodating this sort of building in the world. There's a term for this that we use, and it's called common grace. See, that's in order to understand common grace, you need to grasp these two ideas. The first is that the world is totally and utterly corrupted by sin. And you don't have to be a religious person to think that. You could just think of entropy. Things generally spiral towards chaos. Not order, but disorder. So that's premise one. Premise two is look around and see that a lot of things are working. So if the world is utterly corrupted by sin, then why is anything working? And the answer that Scripture provides is God's grace is active in the world. He's not removed, but he is active in the world through both Christians and non-Christians, bringing good things out of and into the world. Paul talks about this common grace, which uh, uh, Solomon is referring to here in these verses. In Acts 14, when Paul is in a city called Lystra, uh, he's talking to a, a group of non-Christians, people who'd never been exposed to Christianity or the God of the Bible before, and he's describing how God has been engaged with them this whole time, even though they didn't know it. He says this, yet he did not leave himself without witness. He is God. He did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. See, Paul is positively stating the very principle that Solomon was negatively stating. 
Unless the Lord builds the house, your labor is in vain. If you receive any fruitfulness from your labor, then you have God to thank for that. You are a radically dependent type of creature so that you can spin your wheels and you can labor as much as you want. But if God is not accommodating that labor, it will be in vain. This is a really big principle. So in this verse, we can see that this first premise for how Solomon is sort of addressing his anxiety is this radical dependence that he describes. And another way of seeing that is we require God's common grace in the world. And then when we, that's sort of on a macro level, then if we zoom in on a micro level, the sermon has a lot of zooming in and out, by the way, so be prepared to get a little seasick. If we zoom in on to the micro level, we can put a lot of pressure on this word vain, which is unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. That, that's a really loaded word. It packs a lot of meaning. It, it equates to like vapor. And it's getting across this idea of meaninglessness. And so when we think about that personally and what we're pursuing in our work, it pushes us towards what the ultimate outcomes are. Because the goal of building a house is not simply to have four walls and a roof. The goal of building a house is to have a more full, more complete life. You're looking to create a, a better environment to have a family in. You're looking to be able to show hospitality to people who are not typically shown it. And it's all of those things that bring the house this sort of greater meaning. It's the reason that you're actually building the house. The house isn't the goal in and of itself. It isn't the end. It's the means to an end. And so with this idea that unless God accommodates it, it is in vain, it is possible for a home to be built and then prove to be meaningless because it is just filled with anxiety and suffering. It's pitiable to see someone who can gather such wealth and be totally unable to enjoy it. That's vanity. It's vanity. So on both the macro level and the micro level, this verse has real implications for how dependent we are on God, not just for things to happen at all, which we are. We're dependent for him, on him for things to happen at all, for the house to be there, but also for the ultimate outcomes of the house to be truly fulfilled. We're dependent on him for those as well. This verse is humbling. So, as we look at that from those two different levels, these initial premises that Solomon presents to us, then we're able to move into how it is that we could have peace in the midst of our work. How do these connect? So in Psalm 127, verse 2, it says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So after laying this foundation of the deep connection between God's uh, common grace and our labor, then he moves into 
this discussion of a type of person who is living as though those things aren't true, who's living as though the ultimate outcomes and the thing manifesting in the world are totally and completely up to themselves. And the way that Solomon describes them is, uh, it's in vain that you rise up early and you go late to rest. So you're waking up early because your head is spinning about all the tasks that you have to do that day, and you're staying up late just to try and cram to get them done. Uh, You're eating the bread of anxious toil, which has a lot of connotations, but it's demonstrating this person who every bite is, they're so nervous because it's disappearing, and the bread is vanishing, and it's going away, plagued by this sort of constant anxiety in all aspects of their experience, just driven by anxiety. And ultimately, what that demonstrates is They believe, we believe, that the ultimate outcomes are only ours. That there is no real relationship between God's work and ours, but that it is only ours. John Calvin captures the nuance of this verse so well. He says, Not that he forbids us to practice temperance in our diet and to rise early to engage in our worldly business, but to stir us up to prayer and to calling upon God and also to recommend gratitude for the divine blessings. He brings to naught whatever would obscure the grace of God. So Calvin gives us three things there. We're going to walk through them. So first of all, he, see, he says, you see, well, kind of four. I'll put a bonus one on the top. First thing he says is there's a uh, he's not saying that it's, it's, there's some inherent wrongness about rising up early or about staying up late to get work done. That's not what he's saying. It's the demeanor in which we're doing those things. So Calvin points us to, first of all, there's this drive to prayer. If it is true, as Solomon has already asserted, that unless the Lord joins our work, unless the Lord builds then our building is in vain, then that ought to be a drive for us to pray. So instead of waking up and our minds immediately going to all the anxiety and all of the worry and being driven by that anxiety and worry straight into our labor, we never take the time to pray because it feels like we're abandoning the part of us that really matters, which is our productivity. And we aren't seeing that unless God accommodates our productivity, then it's useless. So if it is true, as Solomon has asserted, that unless God joins our labor, then it's for nothing, then we ought to be asking him to join. We ought to be asking for his guidance, saying, where are you building? Because I don't want to be building somewhere that you're not, because that's useless. That's a waste. So where are you building? And I'll build there. And because we have this view of common grace, which is so broad, because we can see God's grace operating in so many different places in the world, we can see that he's building with these non-Christians over here that are doing this incredible work, so I can join them. We don't have that same dichotomy that we would have seen earlier. So that's thing one. Secondly is the drive to prayer. Secondly, he points the call towards gratitude for the blessings that we have. See, what Solomon is doing here 
is he's switching our motivator. Calvin picks up on this. He says, to recommend gratitude for the divine blessings. We don't really have a category for gratitude as a motivator. Instead, we rely pretty much exclusively on fear and anxiety and positions of lack to be our true motivators. And Solomon is flipping that. And he's saying, actually, gratitude needs to be your motivator. Uh, we recently watched a TED Talk, for those of you that are with me in the coaching class that we're in. It's a coaching school uh, called Four Streams that was started by a guy named Russ McKendry. You'll meet him. Um, and uh, we watched this TED Talk uh, just this past week called The Happy Secret to Better Work, and it was by a guy named Sean Anker, who talks really fast. So the quote is pretty long. Um, but I'll go, ahead and, I'll go ahead and read it because he captures this point. He says, I found that most companies and schools follow a formula for success, which is this. If I work harder, I'll be more successful. And if I'm more successful, then I'll be happier. That undergirds most of our parenting and managing styles, the way that we motivate our behavior. And the problem is, it's scientifically broken and backwards for two reasons. Every time your brain has a success, you just changed the goalpost of what success looked like. You got good grades, now you have to get better grades. You hit your sales target, we're going to change it. And if happiness is on the opposite side of success, your brain never gets there. We've pushed happiness over the cognitive horizon as a society. That's because we think we have to be successful, then we'll be happier. But our brains work in the opposite order. If you can raise somebody's level of positivity in the present, then their brain will experience what we now call a happiness advantage, which is your brain at positive performs significantly better than at negative, neutral, or stressed. You see, Anchor is showing the very same thing that Solomon is pointing out. He's demonstrating that we've pushed happiness over the cognitive horizon because it always follows success. See, we've pushed gratitude over the cognitive horizon because it always follows success. But if we have the eyes to see that Solomon has in this, to open our eyes to the, this incredible gratitude that we should have for every day that God provides for us, that, that we're, we're literally swimming in his grace in a totally sin-corrupted world, for any, any success that we see happen, any job that comes together, is, is totally counter to the natural order. And we should be surrounded in this gratitude that makes us want to be participating in the work that God is doing. And instead, we're allowing ourselves to be governed almost exclusively by fear and anxiety, which is saying that God doesn't actually have anything to do with the work that I am doing, only I do. And therefore, if I get what I earned, it is not something to be grateful for, that is merely justice. We have no gratitude, we only have our dessert. Not like <laughs> what we deserve, <laughs> not like food. 
This is a big point because we don't typically view our anxiety as rooted in pride. And yet, when we tease it out, it's deeply in there. So finally, I want to look at this last section of that Calvin quote where he says, this, this, I thought this was so powerful. He says, he brings to naught whatever would obscure the grace of God. So I want to put this into one example, one tangible example that I've had discussions about with many of you. Uh, so we can put some flesh on this idea of God brings to naught whatever would obscure his grace. So the example that I want to use is imposter syndrome. Do you know, is that a familiar term? It's sort of become a popular term lately uh, for that feeling of I recently received a promotion and now I feel like I'm totally out of my league and it's any day now where I'm just going to get uncovered and everybody's going to discover what a fraud I truly am. That sort of imposter syndrome. So I'm going through my life and I feel like I'm an imposter. In my conversations, what's come out is that this imposter syndrome isn't rooted in any sort, it can be, but typically it isn't rooted in any sort of real incompetence. In fact, it's rooted in, uh, for many, in, in a real competence in their work, in a competence that was seen, and so they were given more responsibility. But because they feel like this is a, a grace that they don't deserve to have this sort of competence in this work, they begin to hide. And so they aren't speaking up in meetings in the way that they should, and they aren't uh, contributing to their role with a, with a wholeness that they should be. They aren't risking by using their own voice and the gifts that they've been given. Instead, they cower and they shy away and start to rely on strange and stupid metrics to determine why they should be in the position that they're in. So instead of, I really see clearly how these systems should be rolled out in this business, it becomes, I'm sending the first email in the morning and I'm sleeping the least. What a horrible metric for whether you're a good worker. What a horrible metric for whether you're utilizing who you are to benefit the company. And yet those are the things that we're relying on and they're just driven by anxiety. Instead of being able to say, this is something that I can see clearly, and I didn't ask to be able to see it clearly, but I simply can. And so I can be a benefit to this company by using my voice and speaking up and saying things that need to be said, and we can all benefit from that. The difference in one is I'm trying to not accept something as a gift, but transform that gift into something I've just earned. And the other is saying, this is a gift, and therefore I'm going to wholeheartedly, with max effort, move into using this gift. Do you see the difference? One is driven totally by looking to justify the gifts that you have. Another way of saying that is to obscure the grace of God and then the other is saying, this is a gift. 
And therefore, because it's a gift, I'm going to steward it well. And that's a person who's motivated by gratitude. So they can live freely as themselves, benefiting the world that they're in, not trying to simply justify themselves and rob God of the grace that they've been given. I hope that's a tangible example. It should frighten us because, as Calvin says, God brings to naught whatever would obscure the grace of God, which means that it is in vain that you rise up early and you go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, because he gives to his beloved sleep. When you are taking on the things that aren't yours, when you are trying to justify the gifts that you have and the ways that you should be moving in the world, you're obscuring the grace of God, motivated by anxiety, not motivated by gratitude. So, finally and quickly, I'm going to look at the glory of our work. You see, ultimately, what we're looking for our work to do is connect to something that's truly meaningful and truly lasts. If we want our work to not be in vain, then that's what that means. It means that it really lasts, it really matters, it really has an impact in the world. And another way of saying that is we need our work to be glorious. There needs to be a glory in our work. So the last section of the psalm can, can feel pretty disconnected from the previous part on a first read, but it's not really, especially when we consider who's writing. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb of reward. Like arrows in the hand of a, war, of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Many commentators that I read said that this wasn't actually uh, primarily about children, but he's drawing on a metaphor of him as a king and his subjects as children. And so when he is surrounded by many faithful subjects and he meets with his enemies at the weak part of the wall, which is the gate, and he has his many loyal subjects with him, his warriors, uh, he will not be put to shame. And that, he is saying, is all God's doing. That is God's providing. Even though he has to wake up and be a king every day, he's saying this, ultimately, this me not being put to shame, the opposite, the opposite of shame, by the way, is glory. Me having my kingly glory maintained, that is finally and ultimately in God's hands. And so Solomon is able to hold this whole kingdom of responsibility and all the labor and effort that comes along with that from this place of gratitude and thankfulness to God. Because we desire our work to be connected to a truly glorious kingdom, we need to zoom out and see what, that, what is that? What is that truly glorious kingdom? Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of heaven, that kingdom that actually lasts into eternity. 
the one where the king is truly good and the ultimate ends are finally met. Where our work isn't in vain, but it always connects and is truly meaningful. And Jesus describes the way that that kingdom grows. It doesn't grow anxiously. There's a real connection here in these kingdoms. In Mark 4, 26 to 29, Jesus says this. He says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises, night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. The Greek word there is literally automatically. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. You see the way that the kingdom of heaven grows. A farmer goes out, he labors, he sows his seed, and then he sleeps. Because he knows, I have my part to play in this, but this whole thing isn't mine. I can't make it grow. That needs to happen outside of me. For this labor to ultimately matter, I need God to do this. And so he treats himself not like he is God. He treats himself like he is a creature with limits. And so he sleeps. For some reason, God has structured us as humans where we need to, once a day, become useless. And God's labor doesn't stop. He never sleeps. Because he doesn't, we can. Even in our labor, be entering into his rest, knowing that he must accommodate our work for it to be meaningful. Being not anxious means trusting that he will. Taking the work that he has for us in gratitude, joyfully living it out, and resting in his ultimate care. That's how the kingdom of heaven grows. Okay, let's take some questions. Nice. That could be good or bad. All right, let's pray. Father, for me personally, nothing exposes my lack of faith in you like my anxiety. Nothing exposes how fearfully I, I, I want to be in control of my own life and my own outcomes uh, and, and how, how fearful I am of even letting my anxiety go. Because I fear if I do, then I'll, I'll lose any sort of motivation. 
Father, help us to look at ourselves, to step back and see what we're becoming when we live day after day anxiously so that we would care what we become so that we would become creatures that glorify you that participate in bringing about true glory in the world Father, as we take communion, I pray that you would remind us of the rest that you're bringing us into that costs you so much. Father, we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.